0: The ancients—they did something terrible, didn't they, to cause all this water hundreds, hundreds of years ago? If I tell you where you opened this lock, I have the key.
1: Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Presents Waterworld, H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 33 and 34, which begin with Gregor getting the dirt on where the Mariner found his dirt, ha. and end with Helen and Enola noticing that everyone is headed to the organo barge At the tail end of last episode, Gregor was up by the cage talking to the Mariner, and at the beginning of today's clip... He's pulling out his hand-drawn copy of Enola's tattoo.
0: Yeah, he didn't come here to chit-chat about the Mariner's physiological condition. He came here for a specific reason that is to find out all information that the Mariner may have about Dryland. Mm-hmm. I think a mistake that he makes in his presentation of that he wants info is it's a question dump on the Mariner. It is. He asks him too many questions that are too wide a range of subjects. Mm. Like, pick a subject, and maybe the Mariner will talk to you about it, but he wants to know where the dirt comes from, what the tattoo means, what the history of the planet is. (laughs) That's just too much, even if the Mariner did have those answers and was inclined to give them.
1: I'll give Gregor the credit. He did have a pause between asking do you know what this is holding up the tattoo Mm. and then proceeding on to his generalized question because i feel like where did your dirt come from is it from dry land yeah that's one half of questioning the other half is do you know what this is the tattoo his pontificating about oh the ancients they did something terrible did they to cause all this water hundreds of hundreds of years ago that's just him filling dead air or at least that's how it feels to me
0: kind of having a hard time defining quite why I didn't like his questioning pattern. Mm -hmm. He doesn't give the Mariner a chance to answer. And yeah, there's pause. There is a pause. Yeah. And he does seem to be leading the Mariner in a direction by saying, the ancients, they did something, didn't they, to cause this water hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So he's leading him in a direction, but that's the direction Gregor wants to go. Who says that's the answer to his first two questions? Gregor should be more open to whatever answers the Mariner does have instead of leading him down his own path.
1: Yeah, give him more time to answer because we've already established the Mariner doesn't like regular non-mutant humans.
0: Mm.
1: He is going to be, you know, let's say, apprehensive <laughs> to allow a line of questioning to proceed He's only said the one thing to Gregor, oh, I have no kind, and Gregor immediately threw that back in his face. Not that the Mariner would necessarily not answer out of spite because of Gregor personally, Mm. but he would certainly not answer out of spite for Gregor as a member of the human Yeah,
0: Yeah, and many times when the Mariner is speaking to someone, he's not necessarily quick to answer questions. He would prefer not to answer questions, but when he does, you kind of got to let him do it on his own time frame. (laughs) Yeah. In the previous chunk of minutes, in the first half of Gregor's conversation, Gregor had to put a lot of effort just to get the Mariner to respond with one sentence. Mm -hmm. You can't just ask him a question and expect him to throw the answer right back at you. You have to give him the space to do it on his own terms. He does everything on his own terms.
1: I can't help but think that when Gregor says the ancients, they did something terrible, yada, 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 he's of the mindset that this mariner may be a descendant of the ancients that he's speaking of, and they're keeping the secret of dry land to prevent more flooding, Or to prevent circumstances that led to the original flooding. Ah. And so he's bringing it up in order to show this descendant of the ancients that he has no desire to re-cause a calamity.
0: I like that idea that Gregory is somehow trying to reassure the mariner of something. The way he speaks of the ancients, they did something terrible, didn't they? What I hear is that there's not necessarily a mythology. Or legends about the old world mm-hmm. and how it came to be Water World, which I find odd. I would think that just like around the world, different cultures have the flood myth. It shows up everywhere, mm-hmm. it's a universal concept. And that's something that happened a very, very, very long time ago, certainly longer to us than the world flooding to them. So, I find it odd that they don't have myths and legends handed down, folklore handed down of what happened and what life was like before.
1: Something more than the supposition that a terrible event occurred.
0: Yeah, it actually reminds me of Game of Thrones, which I'm not terribly into. I've never read the books. I watched the series, but I was not into it to the level that I was upset by the final season. That's (laughs) kind of like my level of commitment. honestly i didn't care either way i thought it was fine so that gives you an idea of where i am on the game of thrones scale but what fascinates me and i still read up on the lore on wikipedia and stuff i love looking at the maps and going and looking up the histories of all these different cities that aren't part of the tv show that never get discussed but they have a whole history that george r R. martin has written and the idea of the valerian cataclysm that there's like no information on it. They don't know what it was. It just happened one day where everything just exploded in fire. And that's just it. There, there's no more information than that. And that drives me bananas that there's no information on what happened. That all of those, even legends and myths are gone. Drives me bananas. And that's what this world would drive me bananas.
1: Mm. While I don't believe that the Mariner necessarily has any answers for Gregor, the Mariner is able to read the writing on the wall and surmise that if he gives Gregor some sort of answer, he could get something out of it. And so he says, if I tell you, will you open this lock? And Gregor, not thinking laterally at all, responds by saying, I haven't a key. He's yeah, a cle-
0: for someone so clever. He's a clever
1: guy. I feel like he should be able to think laterally. yeah. But maybe Gregor just isn't used to breaking the law. In quotations. Law in quotations.
0: (laughs) The idea of picking a lock is foreign and outside of his, not skill set. I imagine if he wanted to, he could do it. But outside his typical functioning set of skills. He just doesn't use it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need to. Are there locks other than this one on this atoll?
1: There's got to be more than just one padlock on the entire atoll.
0: (sighs) (sighs) I'm sure you're right, but there doesn't seem to be much for personal space, Mm -hmm. where a lot of the locks that we use in our daily life is to secure our personal space. We lock our cars, we lock our homes, so that we ensure that our personal space stays our personal space. They don't seem to have a strong concept of, this is my home. Yeah. I'm not sure they have enough space to do so.
1: To have individual property.
0: Yeah. And I think Gregor and Helen and Enola do because they essentially live in his workshop. And he has his workshop because he is the engineer.
1: Mm -hmm. The Mariner responds to Gregor's befuddlement by saying that there is a mooring cleat down below them. And Gregor responds by saying, what? What? And the Mariner explains, it's as good as any key. And Gregor says, a mooring cleat? And I don't want to think that Gregor doesn't know what a mooring cleat is because he lives in a maritime setting. I think what's confusing Gregor about the idea of the Mariner wanting a mooring cleat is he thinks, well, that's not a key. It's a mooring cleat. You tie a rope onto it. It's attached to the thing. How is that going to help you open a padlock? Because he's not thinking laterally.
0: Yeah, honestly, this confuses me a little bit. (laughs) I I know I kind of made a scenario in my head Where he wouldn't really know about picking locks But realistically, come on (laughs) I don't don't really get this That he doesn't understand the connection between Hey, get me that mooring cleat and I'm going to get out of here Come on
1: It's my guess that the Mariner doesn't intend To use the pointy end of the mooring cleat To pick the lock Although he spends a lot of time in this movie Stabbing at this padlock But that's in later minutes I suspect that the Mariner wants to get his hands on this mooring cleat and then use it as a mini crowbar. So one of the reasons Gregor might be confused is because the Mariner is not just asking for a crowbar.
0: Yeah. Uh, So the mooring cleat as a crowbar. I don't love it. It's so short that it wouldn't get good leverage.
1: Mm -hmm. The main thing that mooring cleats have going for them is that they are forged to be strong and resilient and not flex.
0: Very true. Very true. And I thought mostly about that banister that's right there. Mm -hmm. Like, rip a piece off of that banister and (laughs) use it as leverage. But I can't imagine that that would be very strong, the pieces of the banister.
1: Yeah. If you can tear it off by hand, it's probably pretty soft. And Gregor is not carrying any sort of tools to separate anything, let alone a mooring cleat from a piece of steel down below.
0: So... Gregor going up there, he went up there with a mission to get information out of the Mariner. Right. He did not go up there with any intention of letting the Mariner out. So his plan was to appeal to his better nature to get the information out of him, just to ask Yeah. and expected an answer?
1: It's like I always say, there's no harm in asking. The worst they can say is no. And the Mariner sees this as that opportunity to barter an escape plan. But Gregor is, how does he put it? Gregor says, I'm not a brave man.
0: That's a really good point. He is not up there to take any risks. Mm -hmm. He is up there to do the bare minimum.
1: And he almost goes along with the Mariner's plan. Because the Mariner assures him that if he gets out of that cage, he is going to leave. He's not going to hurt anyone. He's not going to seek revenge or anything like that. He's just going to get on his boat and go. I don't know how he's going to get the gate open. Way more subterfuge than he has any ability to do. But Gregor is almost about to go and do that thing, and then the Enforcer catches him.
0: Yeah, I do think that Gregor, if he had not been seen and spoken to, would have gone through with it. As long as there was no challenge to his bravery, he would have done it.
1: And Gregor, he freezes like a deer in the middle of the road.
0: Yeah. (laughs) You know, at least he's honest. Yep. I am not a brave man. He knows what he's about.
1: And he spins on his heels and he's appealing to the Mariner anything about dry land. Just give him the information really quick. And then he says, please don't let it die with you. That's such a grim outlook. And it's one that is born from hearing all of the news from the public meeting that Helen shared with him. It is very clear that the Atoll is not going to let him live. So if there's any information, say it now because you won't get that chance in the morning.
0: Yeah, Uh, it feels very foolish (laughs) to ask the Mariner to do this, but on the other hand, we know the Mariner much better than Gregor does. Gregor hasn't been a part of the scenes where the Mariner came in and traded a bunch of valuable stuff and then spent those credits buying up everything and then was accosted. He wasn't part of any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. He wasn't part of the hearing debate. (laughs) Council meeting? Public public, forum? Public forum meeting? He wasn't part of any of that. So he has learned nothing about the Mariner. So he doesn't see how foolish his actions are. Yeah. But we do.
1: It's easy to see the Mariner's frustration with the situation. This is not the first time that he is going to start thrashing around in the cage. It is definitely not the last time. And... You got to give the Mariner credit for one thing. He's trying to use every bit of muscle that he can to break himself out of his cage. He's staying true to his loner mentality, but all he's doing is looking like a kid who's stuck in a (laughs) pack-and-play.
0: It's a very Tommy Pickles imagery.
1: Exactly, and it's not helping him at all.
0: No, which is frustrating.
1: Yeah, In fact, it draws even more attention and the Enforcer has to yell at Gregor again to get out of there, get moving.
0: Maybe if Gregor wasn't wearing a light on his chest, (laughs) the Enforcer wouldn't have noticed him. When we earlier saw the boys poking at him, was that during the meeting or after the meeting?
1: I'm pretty sure it was immediately after.
0: Okay, because I'm just wondering about how the boys were able to get away with causing such a ruckus.
1: We did the boys, we cut inside to... The windmill and then we cut back out and Gregor showed up. Yeah. So the enforcer was likely still busy inside the meeting and this is the first time he's wandered out.
0: Okay. Alright, I'm on board with that timing then. Because, yeah, the boys were allowed to poke at him without interference. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense.
1: The enforcer is satisfied that Gregor is moving on so he can move along and nothing interesting happens for the rest of the evening because the next thing we cut to is the sun rising in the morning, and there are a bunch of these silhouettes against the rising sun, and it made me think, because we see the sun rising, and then we do a nice little fade to an atoller standing on a watchtower, and the sky looks rather pinkish-orange, and it reminded me of red sky at night, sailor's delight, red in the morning, sailors take warning. So I did a cursory googling, And it turns out that the Library of Congress has an Everyday Mysteries page where I'm assuming people are submitting questions and then they write up these little explanation articles about these questions. And so they have a page for this and I copied some of the sections on. So the question is raised, can weather lore truly predict the weather or seasons? And they explain that. Weather lore concerning the appearance of the sky, the conditions of the atmosphere, the type of movement of the clouds, and the direction of the winds may have a scientific basis and likely can predict the weather. In order to understand why red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in morning, sailor's warning can predict the weather, we must understand more about weather and the colors in the sky. Usually, weather moves from west to east, In the mid-latitudes, the prevailing winds are westerlies. This means storm systems generally move in from the west. The colors we see in the sky are due to the rays of sunlight being split into colors of the spectrum as they pass through the atmosphere and ricochet off the water vapor and particles in the atmosphere. The amounts of water vapor and dust particles in the atmosphere are good indicators of weather conditions. They also determine which colors we see in the sky. During sunrise and sunset, the sun is low in the sky and it transmits light through the thickest part of the atmosphere. A red sky suggests an atmosphere loaded with dust and moisture particles. We see the red because red wavelengths, the longest in the color spectrum, are breaking through the atmosphere. The shorter wavelengths, such as blue, are scattered and broken up. So, when we say, red sky at night, sailors delight... That means that the setting sun is sending the light through a high concentration of dust particles. This usually indicates high pressure and stable air coming in from the west. Basically, good weather will follow. A red sunrise can mean that a high pressure system or good weather has already passed, thus indicating that a storm system, which is made up of low pressure, may be moving to the east. A morning sky that is a deep fiery red can indicate that there is a high water content in the atmosphere so rain could be on the way.
0: Okay. I always knew that it was something about the weather. I had a general idea. But that was a good article. It made it very clear.
1: It's hard to go wrong with the folks over at the Library of Congress.
0: Yeah, generally speaking, they know what they're talking about.
1: Never underestimate librarians with federal funding. (laughs) But despite how the morning sun is rising, we cut inside a boathouse, and we find Helen curled up in the corner of a room and we can tell that this is the boat that helen and enola stay in because every surface is covered with charcoal drawings
0: so this is their own boat it's a boat or a boat house
1: well or a house boat. it's the cabin where the helm is located on a boat
0: okay so it's a boat that they live in yes okay <laughs> It doesn't seem to have much by way of accommodations.
1: Yeah. It kind of bothers me that they don't have hammocks or beds or anything. Right.
0: It's exactly that she's sleeping in the corner, like awkwardly propped up in the corner. And yeah, even if there's not a plethora of comfortable materials around, like a hammock would be great. Mm-hmm. Some sort of designated I sleep here space and not where you're cramped. Sleeping like that, she's going to be stiff and sore. You would at least need to be able to lay flat, even if it's just on the floor.
1: What's bothersome is that this is one of the only instances we get to see a domestic area of the Atoll. We don't get to see other sleeping rooms other than this one. It doesn't paint a good picture for the way that the rest of them are living. Yeah. And that's a bit of a bummer.
0: It is. It makes me sad because I enjoy living comfortably. And if I were to lose those comforts, I would be sad. So, watching other people lose those comforts makes me sad. Mm -hmm. There's also something that I really love because it's a move that I would make is that Helen throws her shoes on the floor to put them on. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) It's just so everyday, person. Yeah. It's exactly the sort of thing that I do on a regular basis. I grab my shoes out of the shoe basket. And if there are shoes I can slip on, like my flip flops, I'll just throw them on the floor and then get my feet into them exactly the way Helen does. Mm. It's one of those small reminders that we're all the same. Yeah. People are people.
1: Just because we're separated by an indeterminate amount of time, there are still little practices that we always have.
0: Yes. I also love, 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 just before she does the shoe move, she wakes up in the corner, she gets up, and the way she. Runs to the window and hops up on the bench. It's so smooth. It feels funny, but it's it's lovely. It's satisfying to watch her do it. Mm. And it's such a small move. It's nothing really incredible. It's just very satisfying.
1: Yeah. And as she's looking through the window, everybody, it seems, is heading past on their way, I assume, to the organo barge where the mariner is being held. I don't know if there was a general agreement that this is when it was going to happen, but I guess they all assumed, hey, as soon as the sun is up and everybody's awake, it's going to happen.
0: This does remind me of the novelization where Helen ran upset from the meeting. Mm -hmm. So we know that that meeting happened after she left, where they could have decided, okay, at an hour past sunup, we're going to see to the Mariner. And she wasn't there for that. She didn't know that they had decided upon a definite course of action. So she seems surprised by all of this happening. She's the last person in the A-hole to wake up. Mm -hmm. So it goes along with the idea that she didn't know it was happening.
1: Speaking of the novelization, I was reading in this section, and not only do they have the decency of giving her a bed, but she wakes up puts her arm next to her where she's expecting to find Enola. Mm-hmm. And Enola isn't there because Enola's already awake. And so she has a miniature freak out moment because everybody in the meeting was talking about, hey, we got to get rid of Enola. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of a panic to her. But then she gets up and realizes that Enola is just at the window. Mm-hmm. And Helen realizes that they are going to kill the Mariner. And so she tells Enola not to look. And... Anola in the book has a line that I really like. She says, not watching it won't make it not happen.
0: Right. It's going to happen whether she's there or not, so she might as well be there. Mm.
1: And she straight up says that they should help him.
0: Right, because she's a child and she's innocent.
1: She's got that pure. idealism. Yes. That childlike idealism that you just hate so much. I...
0: It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. It's just so pure
1: and gross. <laughs> So that wraps us up for today. It's a bit of a short episode, I know, but when we come back next time, we'll get to see the Atoll's elders pass judgment on the Mariner and his sentence will commence. But one of the lookouts might just happen to see a large raiding party heading their way towards the Atoll and raise the alarm. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham.
0: Waterworld was written by Peter Raider and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures.
1: Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Diaz Ire by Daniel Batista of danielbatista.com.
0: Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com.
1: You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute.
0: And like us on Facebook by searching madmaxminute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone.
1: If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmen.
0: Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 17. We'll see you next time.